It's been almost 10 months since our lives were turned upside down with various quarantine protocols, masking and social distancing orders, business and school closings, openings, closings, and openings. As we try to make the best of our new normal, and with the hope inspired by newly authorized safe and effective vaccines, the looming question on everyone's mind is how will the vaccine be distributed to millions of people in an ethically justifiable manner? Welcome back to Mince's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. Mince is an internationally recognized, multidisciplinary AMLO 100 firm that tackles complex legal issues, develops strategies, and drives strategic growth for clients. Check us out on Mince.com. I'm your host, Neely Yolen, and today I'm speaking with my colleague, Bridget Keller, about the emerging bioethical challenges and guidelines that will dictate how we ration clinical care, equipment, and most importantly, vaccinations in a pandemic. In addition to being a Mince attorney, Bridget is a healthcare ethicist who previously worked with the VA's National Center for Ethics in Healthcare, where she provided technical guidance on healthcare ethics problems. Bridget currently authors the Bioethics in a Pandemic series that appears on Mince Insights at Mince.com. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you, Neely. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Before we do a deep dive into our topic, I have to ask, what does it mean to be a bioethicist? As a lawyer, which you and I are, we study the law, and then we more or less know what is or isn't illegal. But with bioethics, the question is more about what is right and what is wrong, so that what we're really talking about are things like morality, beliefs, and arguably something altogether subjective. And yet, there's a growing recognition of this increasing overlap between law and bioethics. Can you help our listeners understand the relationship between bioethics and the law? Absolutely. And this is a great question. So let's start with what is bioethics? There are so many different definitions, but generally speaking, it's the application of ethics to the entire field of medicine, healthcare, health-related life sciences. So it's an umbrella term that encompasses more specialized ethics thinking. So we can consider healthcare ethics, which typically refers to patient care decision-making. We could think about research ethics, which relates to research studies, large or small IRB work. Or even we can talk about public health ethics. And so as you pointed out, Neely, the law tells you what you can and cannot do. And bioethics is really about what you should do. And sometimes these are not the same. So when you are using bioethics to inform decision-making, really what you're doing is relying on a set of guiding principles to help prioritize the values of the stakeholders who are involved in a particular decision. Okay, that's really helpful. So what are those guiding principles? Who made them? And how have bioethicists come to rely on them to make ethical decisions in healthcare? Yeah, yeah. So there are four well-established principles that guide ethical decision-making in healthcare. And these were set out by two ethicists, Beecham and Childress, back in the 70s. And so they've been around for a while, um, and they are tried and true. So the first is beneficence. And this is the obligation to do good. That means to provide a benefit to the patient and remove harm. 
And similar to this, but different, is the second principle, which is non-maleficence. And this refers to the obligation to avoid harm. So what does this mean? There's inherently some risk in most treatments available in modern medicine. So the question here is really whether the risk of harm is proportionate to the good that a treatment might provide to the patient. Are there other options available that have less harm? And the third principle is autonomy. And this is where informed consent comes in. So I'm sure you, everyone listening can recall signing a consent for treatment at one time or another, right? So this principle is about empowering the patient to be involved in healthcare decision-making. And then the fourth principle is justice. And this is the general obligation to distribute resources fairly. And so when we take each of these four principles, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice, we consider them as equally important even though sometimes they could be at odds with one another. So think about when you have a patient who is uh, refusing a life-saving treatment. So there you have respect for autonomy at odds with beneficence, the need to do good. So even so they have this, you know, odds with one another, these principles help guide ethical decision-making in the healthcare system by enabling decision-makers to consider recognize and prioritize competing values. Okay, I might want to circle back later on the principle of autonomy, but let's move on. So it sounds like ethics in healthcare has been around for a long time, but there's also no question a much larger and much more pressing discourse right now around equity with respect to a COVID-19 vaccine. Can you tell us about some of the ethical guidelines that policymakers are looking toward as they determine the process for vaccine allocation? Absolutely. And so this really pushes us towards the area of public health ethics um, under that larger umbrella term of bioethics. And public health ethics are designed to help guide decision makers within the boundaries of their authority. And so this is about balancing the four principles with the mandate to promote and protect the health and needs of the greater population. So what happens here is that oftentimes decision makers end up focusing on the principle of justice. So when you're thinking about vaccine allocation, policymakers, they're looking to answer central questions like, how do we do the most good for the most amount of people? Or maybe even what intervention would provide the greatest benefit to the community as a whole. And also importantly, thinking about, well, what interventions must be offered to protect all social groups or subpopulations within a particular community? So when you think about these questions, they're all about justice and the greater good. And in practice, the weight given to justice in public health ethics means that a risk of serious harm to the public is an acceptable reason for public health regulations. So what are public health regulations? We know these well right now, right? Mask wearing, travel restrictions, quarantine. These measures are all deemed ethically justifiable when you consider the potential harm to the public and the need to prevent the spread of a virus like the novel coronavirus. You're, you're taking me back to my political science classes in undergrad, um, all of this stuff. So from what I've read, the various distribution frameworks proposed phased or a tiered phased approach to vaccine allocation and distribution. 
Can you talk about the ethics principles that inform the quote-unquote framework for equitable allocation of COVID-19 vaccine? Yes, let's start with who worked on this framework, right? So we have the CDC and the NIH and the National Academies of Sciences who came together to convene an ad hoc committee. So we have lots of experts from different backgrounds um, coming together to discuss these issues and develop an overarching framework for vaccine allocation. And so what does this framework do? It ultimately assists the policymakers, the decision makers in both domestic and global health communities in determining where are we sending our vaccines first and, and how are we going to distribute and allocate limited vaccine. So the overall goal of the framework, and I'm going to read this to you, Neely, so you get it right from the, from the commission here. The goal of the framework is to reduce severe morbidity and mortality and negative social impact due to the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. So I imagine you agree that that is a lofty goal, a really important, important work that this group is doing. It is, and it's a good segue into my next question, because on our last podcast, we discussed issues of racial disparities in healthcare and the fact that people of color have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Do you know how the many frameworks for vaccine allocation are working to mitigate health inequities? Yes. And so all of these frameworks have considered that. They, they acknowledge this issue and they consider it and really wrap it into the overall framework that they are focused on. So when we look at the principles that form the basis of the framework, we're looking at maximum benefit, equal concern, and mitigation of health inequities. Those were the three principles that the committee identified as their guiding um, principles for the framework. And then along with that, when you think about the distribution side, they want to promote fairness, transparency, and evidence-based. Um, and so they took these six principles and they basically established four criteria. And these criteria were risk of acquiring infection, risk of severe morbidity and mortality, risk of negative social impact, and the fourth one, risk of transmitting the infection to others. So these criteria were designed to really address the issues with health inequities in the impact and severity of COVID-19. Um, and importantly, this is a really great quote from the committee's report that I wanted to share with you, is that they, they really acknowledge that there is currently no evidence that this inequity is biologically mediated, but rather is the impact of systemic racism leading to higher rates of comorbidities that increase the severity of COVID-19 infection and the socioeconomic factors that increase likelihood of acquiring the infection. For example, frontline jobs, crowded living conditions, lack of access to personal protective equipment, and the inability to work from home. So the drafters of this framework really wanted to focus on making recommendations for a phased approach that would put this paramount, first and foremost, to ensure that all communities are really receiving access to the vaccine as needed. That's amazing. And actually, it's very similar to what we talked about on the last episode and what needs to be done, you know, on the, at the provider level, not just at the policymaking level. So the pressure to get a vaccine distributed to millions of people has prompted the FDA to say that they're committed to expediting the development of a COVID-19 vaccine, but not at the expense of sound science and decision making. 
They will not jeopardize the public's trust in our science-based independent review of these or any vaccines. There's too much at stake. That's a quote. Now that the vaccine has been approved, what are some of your safety concerns, if any? Oh, that's a great question. So as of today, my main concern is what we would call vaccine hesitancy, that the general public will not trust the vaccines available and ultimately will not be vaccinated. So here in the U.S., vaccines began rolling out a couple of weeks ago, and so far, I think it's been really exciting. The first vaccines were given in the U.K., and then we started here a few days later. And recipients are excited. They're happy to be vaccinated. They're talking about it. They're sharing pictures on social media. And I think that this is going to be the foundation of the public health messaging here. Our healthcare workers are being vaccinated first, and they are thrilled. Um, everyone's excited about it and hopeful. Um, so I'm really encouraged to see the data that has come out of the studies on the first two vaccines that are available. And I'm hopeful that these results continue to be successful as more people receive the vaccine. And ultimately, I'm really hopeful that the general public trusts the vaccine and wants to be vaccinated. Of course, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to combating vaccine hesitancy because any strategy has to be tailored to and address specific concerns. And multiple communities have different reasons for vaccine hesitancy. And so um, this is a monumental task for our public health officials. I, I can imagine. And I also agree with you that the more exposed we are to people getting them, seeing them on every outlet and media, I think the more comfortable people will get in understanding how it works and how they can get it themselves. So beyond ethical concerns, do you see any practical challenges in bringing vaccines to the public? Well, I think we've definitely seen discussion of some of the logistical challenges in the news. Um, you know, vaccines must be kept at certain temperatures prior to distribution, the idea that two doses are required. And so um, recipients need to come back four weeks later for that second dose. You know, and now with the availability of two vaccines, we have folks who need to make sure they're going back for a second dose of the particular vaccine they received the first time. Um, so there could definitely be some practical challenges to ensuring that everyone, you know, does get that second dose. Um, one thing that we've seen a lot of discussion about is whether, you know, what's going to happen if there are less than pleasant side effects. You know, um, oftentimes when you're vaccinated, you do have a sore arm for a few days. Um, but it really remains to be seen. We don't know yet. And with the idea of whether or not vaccination should be mandatory, oh my goodness, I think that we could probably have a whole second episode on that topic alone. <laughs> I was tempted to ask you about that, but I agree we could save it for another one. <laughs> Thank you, Bridget. Thank you so much for being with us today. This was really a fascinating discussion. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you have any questions or comments about this or any prior episode, or you'd like to propose questions or a topic for an upcoming episode, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you back here in a few weeks when we'll be talking about the final rules amending the federal anti-kickback statute and Stark law regulations.